In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we had a very volatile day today in the foreign exchange markets, the equity markets, the crude oil markets. And I'm going to get to Tuesday's uh, market action uh, after I first recap some of the economic data that came out both today and yesterday. Let me start with looking at the personal income and spending numbers that came out on Monday. And personal income was up by three-tenths of a percent, which was in line with the forecast. They did downwardly revise the prior month, which was up 0.4. They moved that to up 0.3. But personal spending, that's where we got the bad news as far as uh, the U.S. GDP is concerned. They were looking for a decline of 0.2. Instead, we got a decline of 0.3, which, believe it or not, is the largest decline in monthly personal spending since September 2009, right? September 2009, during the Great Recession. And if you look at the wages and salaries component, the gain was the slowest pace in seven months. But the real bad news was the December ISM Manufacturing Index. It plunged all the way down to 53.5. That's the the lowest level since January. That's the middle of the polar vortex, January of last year. Uh, It's way below estimates. The new orders tanked. The employment growth sank to a seven-month low. This is for December, right? 
more bad news, which again means that the 2.6% GDP numbers that we got will likely be revised downward. In fact, we got more bad news today on December when it comes to U.S. factory orders. They declined a whopping 3.6% in December. That is the fifth consecutive uh, monthly drop. 3.4%, rather, was the monthly drop. The second largest monthly drop since March of 2013. And there was just there a couple months ago, we had a big drop followed by a big increase on some orders for Boeing. So you could actually throw that that big drop out because it was kind of like a, a quirk. And again, exit out. It was the biggest drop since March of 2013. Again, five consecutive months of declining factory orders. In fact, the year over year numbers right for a full year ending December 2014 orders were down by three point six percent. That is the biggest uh, year-over-year decline in factory orders since November 2009, right? So that's the year beginning, November 2008 to November 2009, right smack in the middle of the Great Recession, and that's the last time U.S. factory orders were as weak on a yearly basis as they are now. I mean, so if we're talking about factory orders that are the same as they were during the Great Recession— How is this the great recovery that Obama was bragging about in his most recent State of the Union address? I mean, he's going to end up looking worse than George Bush did when he was saying mission accomplished, you know, in his uh, flight jacket on that aircraft carrier. You know, no mission has been accomplished. I mean, the U.S. economy is losing trajectory rapidly. I think when they revise the uh, GDP number for the fourth quarter of last year, uh, it could be down to maybe 2.2. Uh, so, you know, this is a rapid decline, maybe a 50% reduction from the 5% BS number that we got for the third quarter. And I think that maybe the action in the foreign exchange markets today maybe senses, finally, they're starting to connect the dots. You know, we are going to get the big non-farm payroll number on Friday. So make sure and uh, stay tuned to the podcast for my reaction to that, which I'll probably be recording from Florida. I'm going to be down in Orlando for the money show. I'm leaving in the morning. And so I'll be there uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So any podcasts that I record, I'll have to do it from Orlando commenting on this data. But this jobs number is going to be big and maybe – People are starting to worry, what if we get a weak jobs number that's as weak as the GDP number? Uh, People might, or maybe not worried, maybe hopeful, because that would take the Fed rate hike out of the game, right? And I think ultimately that's what's happening. You know, we're taking the rate hikes off the table and putting QE4 right back in the center of the table, where I believe it's always been all along. It's just that people haven't seen it. But the reason I think that maybe... People are starting to think about it, not as if there was any immediate reaction to these weak numbers that we got yesterday and today, but there was a a momentum building during the day against the dollar. And part of it maybe was sparked by a $4 or so rise in crude prices. We got as high as $54 today in crude after trading 
a low of about 43 just a few days ago. So more than a 20% spike in crude oil prices. Still, of course, you know, right now as I'm recording this, we're back down to 51.50, well off the lows, but still, you know, half of where we were a few months ago when we were north of $100 a barrel. But that helped the commodity currencies. We had a big run uh, in the ruble today. That rose a few uh, 3%, 4%. Uh, the Norwegian krone, Swiss uh, krona was up. Canadian dollar, after getting pummeled, uh, had one of its best days in a while. I think it, at one point in the day, it was up about $0.02. Cents. It finished off those highs, but I think it was up better than a, p- a cent and a half. Big comeback in the Australian dollar, which at one point was down maybe uh, 1.6, 1.7 cents. I mean, a big drop uh, on a surprise rate cut by the Bank of Australia. They lowered their interest rates uh, to an all-time record low two and a quarter percent. So this is lower than it was, you know, any time during the Great Recession here uh, in the aftermath of the Lehman bankruptcy. And they did this despite the fact that their CPI inflation year over year is still 1.7 percent headline. And the only reason it's you know below two right now is because you had the drop in oil prices. So they got plenty of inflation in Australia, but apparently they want more because they said they need more inflation as if that's what's going to create economic growth. You know, they even said that the Australian dollar is too strong, even though it's fallen from what a dollar ten was the high. It's now down around 77 cents. And they're saying that the Australian dollar is too strong. You know, gold prices last night in Australia were only about 7% below the all time record high. Think about that. Gold prices in dollars are about 1260 right now. The record high was 1900. We're miles away from a record. Yet we're only about 7% or we were below the all time record high in Australian dollars. And you got the central bank saying our currency is too strong. Well, the weakness against the gold price would beg to differ. And what's wrong with a strong currency? You know, why is the Australian central bank determined on increasing the cost of living for Australians? I mean, they basically, uh, you know, were worried about losing the currency war. So they they fired uh, a shot, you know, right at the hearts of their own citizens. And they had a direct hit. Uh, But that big drop in the Australian dollar was reversed uh, here in the U.S., at least against the U.S. dollar. It was still down about a percent against the New Zealand dollar. In fact, the New Zealand dollar was down about one and a quarter, one and a half percent itself. And then it rose to about up one and a half percent intraday. So huge reversals. Uh, You know, these currencies did close off their highs, but still, you know, much closer to the highs and the lows and pretty much across the board positive. Pound sterling had a big day. Euro was almost up two full cents at one point. Um, And and some of that, I don't know, posturing about what's going on with the Greek situation. But I, I think it wasn't as much Greece as it was people starting to prepare for the possibility of a weak jobs number. And maybe, maybe, Uh, A lot of this negative economic news is going to finally start uh, to, you know, make a difference. Because remember, this whole dollar rally was based on uh, the belief that the Fed was going to be tightening and everybody else was going to be fighting the currency war like, you know, Australia last night. But if the Fed isn't going to be raising rates, if the Fed is leaving rates at zero, well, then the two and a quarter in Australia doesn't look so bad, you know. I mean, if you think about it, it's laughable that the Australian dollar would get clobbered against the dollar for for lowering their interest rates from two and a half to two and a quarter 
when we're at zero and we've been there for years and we're not going to raise it at all. And of course, even if we did raise it, I mean, they're talking about maybe a quarter point between now and the end of the year, which is still nothing. Uh, no one is talking about Australia bringing interest rates down as low as, as they are here. No one's talking about a quantitative easing in Australia. But be that as it may, you know, all this enthusiasm for the dollar based on a recovery that is already rapidly deteriorating. And, you know, the Fed is going to be in there doing QE. And not only are we going to get QE4, and I've said this before, but we're going to get a budget-busting economic stimulus where uh, the president is going to get increases in government spending, right? The, de- the Republicans in Congress are going to get tax cuts, right? And we're going to combine tax cuts with increases in government spending, and we're going to blow a hole in the budget deficit and send it soaring back up to a trillion and a half or so dollars because the Republicans and the Democrats are going to be posturing for the 2016 election. Nobody wants to be responsible for this next recession. Everybody wants to claim they did something. They want to cooperate. So we're going to get, you know, we're going to get a a fiscal stimulus and a monetary stimulus. And of course, the only thing it's going to stimulate is uh, consumer prices or maybe asset prices, but it's not going to stimulate the economy. You know, and whenever they talk about an economic s- stimulative, think sedative when it comes to the real economy, because that's all they're doing is they're sedating the real economy while they're stimulating the bubble. But that's all that really matters uh, is uh, you know where they can goose the stock market or can they just buy some time while we spend more borrowed money. But there's no way that government can actually stimulate economic growth simply by spending borrowed money or printing money or any of this stuff, because none of it works. I mean, if it worked, it'd be easy and everybody would do it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it, it doesn't work. Also in the news today, Standard & Poor's is uh, settling the lawsuit brought by the Justice Department. Ostensibly, right, <clears throat> they're sued because of the ratings that they put on subprime mortgages. They they gave them too high a rating, right? They put investment-grade ratings on these bonds, and they ended up going into default. And the government is saying, oh, you know, you, you know you, the ratings you gave were too good, right? And so you're partially responsible for the mortgage crisis because had you been more honest in your ratings, uh, then there wouldn't have been this big collapse because people only bought all these mortgages because they believed the ratings. And of course, I think that's BS because the ratings were nonsense. It should have been obvious to anybody. You know, go look at my mortgage banker speech from 2006. And I mentioned the rating agencies back then, right, a couple of years before the, 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 the financial crisis. And I mentioned how S&P and Moody's are putting uh, investment grade ratings, even AAA ratings on subprime mortgages that I said should be rated F that were going to go to zero. And that was exactly what, what happened. But nobody cared. Everybody, including the government, was looking the other way because they loved the housing bubble. And the last thing they wanted was for S&P to rain on the parade by putting low ratings on the bonds that Wall Street was structuring because without the ability to resell these bonds, there was no subprime market. And without the subprime market, 
the housing bubble would burst and the voters wouldn't have all this home equity and people couldn't spend all this borrowed money. And, you know, and, you know, the party would have ended and some politicians might not gotten reelected. So everybody wanted to keep the party going. This is ridiculous for the government to come back after the fact now and try to hang S&P out to dry as if they were doing something different from everybody else. But here's the thing. They did do one thing different than any other rating agency because they all right put you know high ratings on crap but S&P is the only one that got uh, charged for it prosecuted and why is that well that's because the one bonds they did downgrade were US treasuries right maybe S&P learned its lesson hey you know we 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 should have downgraded those mortgage bonds but we didn't we waited too long let's be more proactive when it comes to the biggest subprime borrower of all the U.S. government, and they, they, they downgraded U.S. treasuries. And that is why they got sued. That's why they got charged. It's obvious that's what happened, because otherwise they would have gone after uh, S&P, I mean, Moody's and Fitch. And of course, why didn't they go after them years ago? Why did they wait until after S&P downgraded them to start launching this investigation? It was retaliation. It was payback. And the irony of it, as part of this settlement where S&P is paying, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, the total settlement is $1.5 billion. And there's a few parties. It's not all going to the Treasury. But they are giving the Treasury less than they originally wanted. So at least they negotiated down somewhat. And S&P is also not admitting or that they did anything wrong. They're just paying the fee. But what they had to agree to, the government insisted that they agree to stop claiming that this prosecution was in any way related to the downgrade of U.S. Treasury. So in other words, they're going to pretend uh, that they don't know the truth. They're going to lie. This is like, you know, cool hand, Luke, let's get your mind right. Uh, and, you know, yeah, boss, right. This has nothing to do with the downgrade, but it has everything to do with the downgrade. We all know it. And what's more important is the government, even though it doesn't want it admitted you know, officially, unofficially, the government wants S&P to know that this is why you were prosecuted. They want S&P to know. They want Moody's to know. Why? So that nobody downgrades them again, right? This is a Tilla the Hun style government or maybe the mafia shakedown, right? This is, you know, somebody, you know, says something bad or does something, right? You, you take them out back and you bash their knees and, you know, cut off their fingers. I guess the government can't do that. You know, they got to be a little bit more civilized. So they fine you hundreds of millions or billions of dollars instead of, uh, you know, breaking your kneecaps. But this is what they're doing. And they want to make sure that nobody downgrades them again. And I'm sure they've accomplished that. It's never going to happen. But of course, what does that mean? That means that the ratings themselves are worthless. If you can't downgrade them, then what's the point of having a rating? You know it's not legitimate. Now, of course, the government's going to say, well, you know, we shouldn't have been downgraded because we're not going to default. That's not the issue. When it comes to rating sovereign debt, it's not just about default. It's about the printing press. And it's about are you going to print money? You know, did the government borrow more than its taxing authority can deliver? Right. And are they going to resort to debt monetization? Because if you own Zimbabwe government bonds, the Zimbabwe government never defaulted. 
If you own Zimbabwe government bonds, you got paid in full in Zimbabwe dollars, which means you got nothing. But they didn't default. So in the eyes of, uh, you know, the rating agencies, I guess they were AAA. But, you know, the, 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 what the rating agency is supposed to do is assess the likelihood that the government might resort to inflation, that they might resort to a central bank printing money to redeem its bonds or buy its bonds, right? Now, when it comes to the U.S. government, Standard and Poor's or Moody's, they don't have to figure out if the U.S. government is going to resort to debt monetization. They're already doing it. You don't have to do anything. They've already, they, we've already gone down that path, and there's no turning back. So obviously, if you hold on to U.S. Treasuries long enough, they're going to be worthless because they can never pay it back legitimately. So it's only a question of time until the dollar collapses. We have runaway inflation, right? So, you know, we know that they shouldn't be rated AAA, but they're always going to be rated that because nobody will dare downgrade them because the government has already shown this is what happens to you. If you downgrade, and of course, if you don't downgrade, nothing will happen to you. See, that's part of the other quid pro quo, right? And I thought that was one of the reasons initially that none of the rating agencies were being accused of any wrongdoing because it was it was it was understood that well, look, you keep AAA rating on the U.S. government, and we don't care what else you do. And of course, the U.S. government protects these companies from competition, right? There's only a few companies that are even allowed uh, to rate because it's a government. Uh, you know, duopoly or, you know, a few companies that they that they you know, allow to do it and they exclude everybody else. So the people that they allow in the club, they have to play ball and playing ball is maintaining the pretense that our debt is triple A when it's all junk. Right. It's just like it's just as much triple A as any of these subprime mortgages that were rated triple A. And that turned out to be a disaster. And this is going to be an even bigger disaster when this bubble Breaks, you know, and when I'm talking, I'm talking about shakedown, right? You know, I got to talk a little bit about what's going on in Greece. You know, they got the new finance minister now. I just wrote a an interesting, uh, uh, you know, piece on the Europac website about the 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 uh, the, the Greek borrowers, the bravado, you know, where this idea that you know the old expression, you know, you owe the bank, you know, a thousand dollars, you know, that's your problem. You owe the bank. $10 million, that's the bank's problem. You know, uh, Donald Trump was very good at, at that type of negotiation. But you've got the Greeks now that owe all this money, and they think they got all the cards because they, you know, they can promise the default or leave the Eurozone. And, and so they're negotiating and they're, you know, they're talking about things. Well, you know, semantics, instead of take a haircut, they're talking about extending the maturities of the debt maybe in perpetuity. So yes, we're not going to default. We're just never going to pay. Just lower the interest rates down really low and make sure that we don't owe the principal for 50 years, 100 years, forever, make it a you know perpetual security. Or they're talking about maybe tying the interest rate to the GDP or I don't know, all kinds of ways uh, around coming out and officially saying the truth, which is we're, we're defaulting. We're giving everybody a haircut. They don't want to use those words. They want to try to pretend or the Germans want to save face. But I thought, very interesting. I was listening on CNBC and Dennis Gartman comes on. And, you know, normally I just like to hear Dennis as a, as a short-term contrarian indicator. In fact, you know, the, the, the stock market rallied 300 points today. And it rallied 300 points yesterday from the low. From Monday's low, to today's close was a 600-point rally. And I think what sparked it was Dennis Gartman turning bearish right at the bottom. Right? Of course, a week or two earlier, he had gotten real bullish, and that's right before the drop. And then, you know, 
as soon as he as soon as I read that he got bearish, I was like, oh, there's going to be a rally. And sure enough, we had this huge 600 point rally. So I don't know. I wonder maybe Dennis will come out tomorrow and get bullish again, and then we can go back down. But other than as a contrarian indicator, you know, I, I sometimes like I like to hear the things that he has to say. Uh, if anything, sometimes it's just it's just entertaining. And he was talking about Greece, and he really outdid himself with with this comment. You got to listen to what he had to say. Germany can't let Greece go. Mm-hmm. Germany is an export country. It needs to have a euro that is that is basically weak on balance. It knows that if it let Greece go, the euro would skyrocket. If it let Greece go, Portugal would leave not too quickly there or not too soon thereafter. Spain would follow the same thing. The euro would get so strong, the rump euro that would be left would be so strong, and, the, and, and Germany's export businesses would suffer dramatically. So nobody wants to think of it in these terms, but Germany needs uh, a weak country such as Greece and other weak countries such as uh, Spain and Portugal to keep pressure upon the euro, to keep the euro going lower so that their export businesses will continue to thrive. It's that simple. The only thing I agree with him on is that if Greece left the eurozone, it would be good for the euro. The euro would get stronger, right? A lot of people were worried that, well, if Greece leaves, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt the euro. No, I think the euro is stronger without Greece than with it. They're the weak sister that's dragging everybody down. So on that score, I agree with Dennis. He says that if Greece leaves, then the euro is going to get stronger. But this is where he goes off on the left field, right? Because then he claims, right, that that's why... Germany can't let Greece leave because Germany, according to Dennis Gartman, needs a weak euro. They need a weak euro, and so they have to keep Greece in the euro to make sure it stays weak. And also, if Greece leaves, then maybe Portugal might leave or Spain, and that would really be a disaster because then the euro would get even stronger. Yeah, what's wrong with a strong euro? Well, according to Dennis Gartman, uh, Germany is an export economy, and they can only export if they have a weak currency. And so they need to keep all these weak sisters on board because the worst thing that can happen to Germany is that they have a strong euro. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? I mean, first of all, you know what made Germany? The Deutschmark, the strength of the Deutschmark, right? When Germany, Germany had the most powerful economy in Europe before the creation of the euro, and their currency dominated. They had the strongest currency other than the Swiss franc. The Deutschmark was a sound currency. It was a hard currency. It was much stronger than the dollar, right? And Germany had trade surpluses. You know, it was the other countries that had weak currencies, that had deficits. And when they created the euro, the idea was to have the euro take the, you know, the mantle take the baton from the Deutschmark. It was going to be the successor to the Deutschmark, the new Deutschmark for all of Europe. The idea was not to have the Deutschmark, I mean, the euro res- resemble the, the Greek drachma. If Nobody would have signed on to that. Well, the appeal of the euro was that we're all going to have this great strong currency, the Deutschmark. It's now going to rival the dollar, and not only will it be sound, but it's you know there's a bigger economy here than the U.S., that the Eurozone had. It was to take the strong Deutschmark and apply it throughout the entire continent. That was the idea. It wasn't that we need the Euro because we need a weak currency. Germany didn't want to weaken its currency. And in fact, if Germany wants a weak currency, 
like they, they don't need Greece to weaken their currency. Just print a bunch of euros. They want a weak euro. Or if they want a Deutschmark, just they never wanted a weak currency. They wanted a strong currency. And anybody can have a weak currency. That's like, you know, that's like flunking out of your 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 your, your course at college or your high school. Anybody can flunk a class. Just just don't show up. Don't study. Right? You know, you know, you know, curse out your teacher. You know, I mean, how hard is it to flunk? The easiest thing you can do is flunk getting an A plus. Now that's not so easy. Not everybody can do that. You gotta study, you gotta be, you know, you gotta show up at class, you gotta do your homework, you gotta prepare for your exams. Getting an A is hard. Getting an F is easy. So having a strong currency is like getting an A. Having a weak currency is like getting an F. Germany doesn't need Greece to flunk out. They could do that all on their own. They could just print up a bunch of Deutschmarks. They can pass a bunch of stupid laws, you know, and they can have a weak currency. This Dennis Garbin thinks that the only way that Euro can be weak is if they, they keep your, uh, Greece in the club. And so they have to do that because if, if Germany has, if there's a weak Euro, then Germany is finished. Well, how did they survive all those years with a strong Deutschmark? And if a weak currency is such a, a, a benefit, why wasn't Greece and prospering before the euro? Why did they, you know, that's when they had a really weak currency. All these Southern European countries had weak currencies. Yet it was Germany that dominated. And Switzerland, of course, the strongest economy in Europe, they had the strongest currency. The Swiss export also. You know, Japan was an exporting powerhouse. They had a strengthening currency up until recently. The currency strengthened throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s. They had huge trade surpluses. Now that they have this policy of deliberately weakening the end, well, now they're running deficits. And America, when we used to have trade surpluses, we used to have a strong currency too. You know, now we have a weak currency, although recently it's strengthened somewhat because of all this nonsense about a tight Fed and a recovery. But over the last 30 or 40 years, the dollar's been weak and we've been running trade deficits. But back in the 1930s or 40s or 50s or, you know, we had a strong currency. We had trade surpluses at that time. And of course, you know, we had a strong currency throughout the 19th century. Right? We had a sound dollar. Prices were declining. We had Consumer prices going down every year. Our currency was gaining value. And we had the Industrial Revolution. So where does Dennis Gartman get the idea that you need a weak currency if you're an exporter and that Germany in particular needs a weak currency? And the only way to achieve that is to keep to give Greece whatever they want to keep them in the euro. Like, oh, no, you know, you can't they can't leave because if they leave, the euro is going to get stronger. That's what they want, a strong euro. That's the success of the euro. Right. If all the European countries got together and they produced a weak currency, that would be a failure. The mark of the successful transition to the euro would be for the euro to be strong. In fact, I'm sure the Europeans would like nothing more than for the euro to supplant the dollar and become the world's reserve currency. They're not going to do that by having a weak currency. They want a strong currency. The Germans want a strong currency. And eventually the euro will be a strong currency, at least with uh, respect to the U.S. dollar, because I believe that there will be uh, a big turnaround in the U.S. dollar. And we'll see. Maybe it's already started today. Maybe it'll kick into another gear on Friday. We'll see when we get uh, the jobs numbers. And I'll be uh, podcasting about that probably uh, later that day. Bye for now. 
Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.